This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Dozeman. In 2009, a novel was released in Norway with a fairly simple premise. The author would simply write about himself, his life, and his attempts to write. The autobiographical novel would be the first in a six-volume series that would eventually total over 3,500 pages, written in just three short years. The frenzied pace at which it was produced would only be matched by the frenzied pace at which it was consumed, with each volume hitting the bestseller list, and it would have all eventually be translated into over 30 languages. The author was Karl Ov Nausgaard, and the novel was called My Struggle. With the dust finally settling in the wake of the enormous controversy the book stirred up, many people are starting to move in to analyze the work with a more critical lens, trying to examine what the work actually achieves, what its place might be in the larger canon of literature, and elements of it we should be skeptical of. One of those critical examiners is my guest today, Kim Adrian, here to discuss her book, Dear Nausgaard, a collection of short letters written to the author himself where she wrestles with the book. While Adrian is herself a fan of Nausgaard, she is not uncritical of him and even finds herself frustrated at various moments with his views on writing, literature, politics, gender, and identity. But this dynamic gives the book an interesting back and forth as it helps her wrestle with these topics. Kim Adrian is a visiting lecturer in English at Brown University and is the author of the memoir, The 27th Letter of the Alphabet, and the book Sock. She has had both fiction and nonfiction appear in a number of outlets, including Tin House, The Gettysburg Review, and The Seneca Review. So, Kim Adrian, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you, Stephen. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, so we always like to have authors introduce themselves at the beginning. So could you tell us a bit about who you are and kind of maybe who you are as a writer? Um. Well, I'm, I think I'm attracted to the essay form and the memoir form, sort of um, genres that allow you to explore things in a kind of lateral sideways movement. Um, my memoir, The 27th Letter of the Alphabet, is written as a series of glossary entries. Um, so that lets me skip around a lot and, and tackle one subject, which is mostly my relationship to my mother who's mentally ill from, um, from a bunch of slightly different angles. Um, and I think I like to work that way in general. I think I do that in Dear Nausgaard as well. Um, I, I'm very interested in literature that takes chances. So I've edited an anthology called The Shell Game, Writers Play with Borrowed Forms, which, um, you know, these are essays that that take on the form of like a crossword puzzle or a recipe or a, a police report. Um, so I, I like things that are kind of surprising and I like to try to write that way too. Yeah, that really came across in this book here. So for listeners who perhaps don't know, um, could you maybe give them a sense of what Nausgaard's book, My Struggle Is, and why it warranted you writing your own book length response? Because it's obviously something of a smash hit in a lot of circles across the world, but it's also, interestingly, one of the easiest novels I think you could describe in a really boring way. So what is this boring book that has captured so many people across the world? Well, for people who don't know anything about it, um, I guess I would just say, as you've already said, it's an extremely long novel. Um, 
it takes over six volumes, well over 3,000 pages, and it is just about Nausgaard's life. Um, he himself calls it a nonfiction novel. Other people call it autofiction. And I think what that, both those terms are pointing to is the idea that the subject matter itself comes from real life. It comes from Nausgaard's life. But the way in which he shapes it um, looks a lot like fiction. So there's a tremendous amount of scene and dialogue, descriptive detail. Um, he also plays with time in ways that we usually see in novels. So dilating a present moment, kind of opening it up and holding it still while he goes back into a memory or does some kind of like side shoot essayistic exploration, which is a favorite maneuver of his. Um, so he uses those kind of techniques um, that make it feel like a novel, but it is very much taken from his own life. So he refused, for instance, to change the names of any of the people in the work. Um, and you, and it's such a seemingly minor thing to do, but it actually um, it actually pulls the work into a level of reality that is surprising, just the choice of names. And there are many other choices along those same lines. Nausgaard's very interested in what he calls making the world real again. Um, he basically considers that the role of literature is to make us see reality as it really is and not through the lens of ideas that we have about reality. So there's, that's a huge distinction for him. And I think that's what energizes his readers is that he he's working very carefully to describe his life from the inside um, because he sees a big he he looks carefully at kind of the screens that we put between our innermost lives our innermost perceptions of reality and the way we kind of interact with others in the social realm. And one of those screens that he pays a lot of attention to is shame. So in, in my struggle, he's working really hard to just like refuse those screens of censorship and self-editing and just um, speak from his heart. And I think you sense that the power of his voice is, is palpable on the page. It's, it's an extremely grave kind of voice. It can be funny at times that you sense the seriousness of his intent and that he's almost speaking from the bottom of his soul. And I think that means a lot to the people who kind of cotton on to that part of it. Um, I think that accounts in large part for the appeal of the work. Yeah. If I can ask kind of a follow-up to that, you talked a bit about how he's kind of trying to re-enliven reality or get to reality you know, beyond just ideas that we normally have about it or preconceived notions. Mm -hmm. And it seems like a core thing that he's trying to do is get past cliches and kind of accepted assumptions. Do you think that's part of why he wrote in such detail and at such great length? Do you think that that excessive descriptiveness is an attempt to get past just letting a cliche do a lot of work for him? Yeah, not just cliches, but sort of any kind of preconceived idea that we have. I mean, I think he's really interested in um, not being numb to the life around us. So he could describe, he could say he's going to go make himself a cup of coffee, and we'd know that he was going to go make himself a cup of coffee. But what he usually does is say, describe exactly making the cup of coffee and the texture of the grounds and the color of the water and the whether it's a weak cup of coffee or it's too strong. I mean, all these details that kind of pile up on each other. And I think he is trying to confront us with the difference between reality and ideas about reality, that we all kind of glide through life to greater or lesser extent, just functioning on ideas about reality, what it should be, what it can be, what it ought to be. And he's insisting on paying attention to reality as it is, so in a funny way, I mean, I'm a student of Buddhism and a student of yoga, and Nausgaard never mentions those things in like 3,600 pages of my struggle. But for me, my struggle was 
um, an extension of those studies because he was, he's talking about the same kinds of things that Buddhism is talking about. Really locating yourself in the present and being absorbed in the present moment. And I think, hmm. I think, yeah. So oh, go ahead. I was just going to say that, that, that this idea that reality can be diluted by ideas and by cliches um, that we carry around in our heads. Um, that that's he he's by trying to um, focus on reality as it unfolds deep within himself. He's putting on the page this very undiluted expression of reality. Um, and it feels extremely vivid and lifelike when you read it. To move along, Nosgaard's work has gained some very passionate fans. And one thing I've noticed is how many of them remember how they got into the series. And they often have had a uniquely visceral response that few authors generate. So I'm wondering if you could just tell us a bit about how you found yourself introduced to this work and how you found yourself eventually committing so much time to not only reading it, but writing about it. Um, yeah, my, I think I was first introduced to it by my friend, Lisa, who works at my local bookstore and co-owns it. And, um, she's a great reader. And I think, I think my approach to this novel was pretty bumpy because I remember seeing it for probably a year before I picked it up. Um, the day that Lisa inspired me to take a second look at it and just being turned off basically by the covers and the title. And the covers all feature of the FSG paperback editions. They all have Nausgaard's like big brooding face on them. Um, and then the title, My Struggle, I just, I just felt like I didn't, that was, I was not interested um, but one day I went into the bookstore and Lisa was talking to another customer, pressing the first three volumes into this woman's hands and saying, you have to read these. These are going to change your life in a good way. And that intrigued me enough to pick up the first volume. And I brought it home and I started reading it. And I, I did like it at first. I thought it was, it reminded me the opening pages of um, Kenzaburo Oe, who's one of my favorite writers. Um, and then, and then on page 50, I think it was about page 50, I really got interested. Um, that's a place where Nelsgaard kind of starts, um, this project of, of describing his life. He just sets out a, a page of biographical details about himself. You know, he's so-and-so many years old. Uh, he was born in such and such a year, um, to a family in Norway. He, He's now married. He has so many kids, just things like this. But there's something about um, the seriousness of his his voice at that point that was almost chilling to me, and I was really intrigued at that point. And I kept reading, and then I got bored because he does this thing with detail where he piles, 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 piles it on. And there was a maybe two hundred page scene, one or two hundred pages. Um, description of a New Year's Eve night in Norway. He's 16 years old. He's hiding beer in the snow. He has to get to a party. He has to find his way to get to another party. It's so boring um, that I put the book down. I forgot about it. And then I wound up going to Iceland for a writer's conference called Nonfiction Now. And Nelsgaard was speaking. At, he, he gave the keynote at that conference. And um, he when he read, I recognized that voice that I'd been so intrigued by on page 50. He had that same kind of gravitas and the whole auditorium, which was like packed, probably, you know, one of the bigger venues in Reykjavik, um, hundreds of seats and everybody was just hushed listening to him. And I did, he was reading not from my struggle that night, but from <clears throat> the, the first book that he wrote following my struggle, which um, starts out as a letter to his unborn daughter. So he read that section of it. And, and he said some really interesting things about literature and writing that night. And I 
I went home and very intrigued to pick the book back up. And I did. And um, the second half of book one kind of delivered for me. I know plenty of people who love that first section with the beer and the snow, but it just didn't speak to me. The second half of book one deals with the death of Nausgaard's father, who was very um, psychologically abusive to him when he was a child and, and also somewhat physically abusive and a very broken person. And he becomes um, very deeply alcoholic and he dies of a heart attack. He's living with his mother at the time in Norway. This is Nausgaard's father I'm talking about. And Nausgaard and his brother have to go to their grandmother's house and clean, clean it before the funeral. So there are, I think it's about 200 pages long descriptions of just cleaning this house. Um, but it's a tour de force. I mean, it, it really blew me away um, because even though the focus is mostly on the actual physical act of cleaning, um, there's this underlying emotional turmoil of, you know, confronting the fact of his father's death and confronting the kind of relationship that he's now left with in the past tense um, because his father is gone. And meanwhile, cleaning up this terrible mess because actually the father was so deeply alcoholic that he was incontinent and his mother, Nausgaard's grandmother, was so old that she really should have been in a home, but the father kept her with him in her house. And she was also incontinent, so the house is a mess for that reason, and there's rotten food everywhere and dirty, you know, plates and empty bottles of alcohol all over the place. And so Carlo Ve and his brother Ingve clean for days and days and days. And um, and at that point, reading that part of the book, I did get hooked and was intrigued to read the rest of it. And of course, it takes a very long time to read a novel that's 3,600 pages long. And I think when you read a book that is that long, it becomes a part of your life. Um, I talked about it all the time. I thought about it all the time. I dreamt about it. Um, and I think I wound up writing about it because it actually had been an experience. Um, I felt like I'd been somewhere with this book because it had woven itself into my own life. And being a memoirist, I, you know, that's my impulse is to look at an interesting experience in my life and see if I can write about it um, and understand it better that way. And I also think I wanted to write about it as a writer to understand, to better understand what Nausgaard had done, because I think it's, I mean, I just think it's really extraordinary work. And I wanted to kind of just look at it really closely and, and see what I could learn from it. Yeah, kind of jumping off that, you decided to write this book as a series of letters directed to Nausgaard himself. And at times the letters have straightforward kind of analysis, but there's lots of other personal anecdotes, whether it's taking a cookie break or visiting with some friends. Um, and that all works its way into these letters as well. So I guess I want to ask why write the book in this way? And in what way did it help you engage with the work that a more kind of traditional academic critique wouldn't mm -hmm. allow you to get at it? Um, yeah, I think I wrote the book as letters out of desperation because I'd actually been trying to write it as a more serious, I mean, it definitely had memoiristic elements in it. That was my intention from the beginning, um, in part because I thought that that was the, to me, that just felt like the right way to respond to Nausgaard's work because Nausgaard's work is so deeply intimate and, because he really places a great deal of emphasis, um, which is something that you understand more and more as the volumes progress. He's very interested in the kind of um, I and you relationship of writer and reader, the, the, the kind of intimacy that can happen through literature. So I wanted to respond in a kind of uh, like way, um, at one point he says he's writing this work for the unfamiliar reader. And I was aware of my role in re responding to him as being that one of many. Um, but I was an unfamiliar reader. 
Um, but even so, I think I was still really, I felt a lot of pressure to respond to the work in a, in a, in a really like critical way, um, like as a critic. And I, I think the complicating factor really is that I had agreed to write this book before book six of my struggle had been released in an English translation. And up through book five, I felt like I had a handle on my struggle and like I could respond to it. Um, I thought I knew what he was doing. Um, you know, I had great appreciation for it. I had a lot of enthusiasm for it. And then book six came out and it's, I think it's 1300 pages long. It's, it's kind of the most difficult volume. Um, it's very meta in the sense that the time period it's treating is, um, is actually the time period during which Nasgard was writing my struggle. So it opens on the eve of the publication of book one and it moves through the composition and publication of all the subsequent volumes up through the writing of book six. So it just feels very closed in on itself. And on top of all that, in the middle of it is a 450 page essay on Hitler um, and the Holocaust. That's just kind of plunked there, but it has a lot of philosophical implications for the work as a whole. And I think when I read book six, First of all, I was exhausted by it. And second of all, understanding better Nausgaard's philosophical intentions for the entire novel kind of intimidated me because um, he's, I, I think he's just an amazing thinker. And I think I was just so intimidated by the, the thought that went into the composition of my struggle that I, I felt intimidated, basically. I lost my voice I just for months and months, like almost a whole year probably. I was trying to write about it and I couldn't because I just didn't have any faith in my own voice. And I got so bad that I actually went to the publisher and said, I'm not, I can't do this right now. I have something else I need to work on. I'll, I'll pick it up in a year or two. And the publisher's this incredibly sweet man. <laughs> for him, he was like incredibly... Um, kind of stern with me. And he was like, you know what? You signed a contract. You just have to pony up and write this thing. And, and at that point I was just desperate. And I started writing a letter to Nausgaard the next day. And, and it suddenly became very fun. Um, I actually enjoyed writing all of these letters. And I think it's because I could find my voice in the letter form and I could respond really as a reader and the pressure to respond as a critic, um, you know, I could fold that into the letter format in a way that felt natural. And yeah, so the letters were fun and that's how I got to them. One of the things I found really interesting about both your work and Nausgaard's is the role various other people in your life play in the book itself. And it seemed like a lot of them were kind of counterpart, there were counterparts in your life to many of Nausgaard's friends and family members. But the one I'm really interested in is in your friend Lisa, who seems to play a similar role in your life as Gear plays in Carl Oves, whether you intended this or not. But I think this raises kind of a question about the role friends play in a writer's life and how they sometimes play this dual role of both friend and muse. So I'm wondering if you can speak to that role and how it plays plays out in both of your lives. Uh, yeah, I mean, I definitely was aware of that that parallel um, between me and Lisa and Carlo Ve and Gare. And for a while that was actually, a, I thought that might be the focus. Um, I thought it could be interesting to write about, you know, two women discussing a work of literature um, and that work of literature, you know, Carlo Ve talks to Gare about um, his work a lot. And so I, I was kind of going to, do something fun with that. And it just felt canned. I didn't really go anywhere, but, um, I think I know that I call Gare a muse to Nausgaard in my, in dear Nausgaard, but hearing you ask this question and thinking about the role that, you know, someone like Lisa or my husband play, play in my life makes me think that maybe that was wrong. I think Gare 
is an interesting character in my struggle. He, he's definitely um, one of the bigger characters. He shows up again and again in each volume. And um, he's really kind of a, a jerk in a lot of ways. Um, he, he just seems like a kind of pugnacious in your face, um, anti-PC type guy who's trying to pick arguments. Like, I think that's, that's the impression that I got from him. But at the same time, he's like this amazingly generous friend to Karlove. So Nausgaard, as you said, wrote this book, this novel, in three years. I thought it was four, whatever. It was an incredibly short period of time. And it was 2009 to 11, that's I think. That's just so. unbelievable, yeah. Right. So he was just like, you know, on fire. And he wrote, uh, I think, it, you know, 10 or maybe 15 pages a day. And at the end of every writing session, he would call up Gare and read to him what he'd written. And Gare would listen and, and respond. And my sense is that mostly his response was like, that's great, man, keep going. Um, but maybe every once in a while he would, you know, say, you might want to think about this or that and give him a little bit of direction this way or that. And that's like what an incredible act of friendship and generosity. Um, so in a way, I think that that's, even though Nasker does take a lot of ideas from Gare, and he discusses that in my struggle, how, how he absorbs these ideas that his friends give him and make kind of like absorbs them and doesn't even realize he's absorbed them. Um, he has a long passage on the importance of influence and the role of influence, and Gare is part of that. But I think for me, like Lisa, you know, she's... Lisa's not a writer, um, and like my husband's not a writer. Gare is a writer. Nausgaard did something similar for Gare. Like Gare would send him his work, and Nausgaard would respond to it regularly too. Um, I think I kind of am amazed by Lisa and my husband and their generosity towards me with my work because they're not even writers, and they still put up with me and kind of help put me like on the right track when I get lost. Um, I think to be friends with a writer, <sighs> you kind of do have to have a certain generosity of spirit. Um, yeah. Yeah. I have friends in the same boat with me, so I get that. Um, so one of the themes that you bring up a lot in relation to Nausgaard is the idea of gaze in the way Nausgaard looks at the world and tries to get us to look at it by offering up this kind of excessive amount of detail and, you know, taking Nabokov's famous imperative to caress the divine detail to its furthest possible extent. So this kind of brings back to some things you talked about earlier, but what do you think he's trying to do with gaze and looking here? Um, Yeah, I think it's all part of this idea that he repeats several times um, of trying to make the world real again, trying to help us see it. Um, So, you know, the Russian formalists have this idea, I think it's called defamiliarization, where um, a, a, a work of literature will like slow down the description of something so that the reader can't just like gloss over it and say, oh yeah, um, you know, whatever. He's, he's putting his kid in the stroller and now he's going to go, you know, drop the kid off at daycare. Um, I think Nausgaard works hard to defamiliarize the reader by slowing down and really paying such close attention to the physical details of, of whatever it is that he's doing. Um, the, you know, there's a scene, I want to say, I don't know what book it's in, I can't remember, but his son, his young son, wakes him up at like 4.30 in the morning and says he's hungry. So Nausgaard goes into the kitchen with his child and gives him a bowl of cereal, but he spends about three, maybe more pages just, you know, 
the gaze is so apparent at this point, just looking at every single thing in the kitchen from the way the early morning summer sunshine is like slanting into the room through the kind of dingy window to the, the pan of water on the stove that's flecked with grease from the night before. There's beet stains on the chopping board. There's an old cheese wrapper that's semi-translucent. On and on and on this goes. And the, what's weird is that it is completely absorbing. Um, I think it's exciting, too, if you're, if you're someone who's willing to spend time with a serious work of literature, um, it, you know, it's exciting. If you're not, it's probably incredibly boring. But um, I think it's exciting because he brings you truly into that kitchen. You really feel like you're there. And I think usually when we see description, we expect it to kind of set the scene or give us some crucial information about a character. But that's not what Nausgaard is interested in. He's interested in showing us his perception of reality from, as I said before, like someplace deep inside him that is pre the kind of editorial processes that happen when we normally try to share our experiences with others. Um, so that that's the gaze. And to me, it's... It's more than just the visual, obviously. It's like a whole body engagement with reality that reminds me. I mean, reading all of Nausgaard, but especially um, book three, which is about his childhood, really brought it home. I felt returned to a state that I recognized from like early childhood. I think we all have really crystalline memories from early childhood that are just mysteriously intact and vivid and textured. Um, and then we lose track of that engagement with the world. And I just think, you know, our heads get crowded with ideas about what the world is and we go by those ideas rather than experiencing it again and again, kind of for the first time. And Nausgaard's work is asking us to experience it again and again, in a sense, for the first time, like really experience it. Um, so that's, that's what I think the, the gaze is about in Nausgaard's work. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Nausgaard's My Struggle has been compared at times to Marcel Proust's In Search of Lost Time, which is another multi-volume novel about recollecting and reminiscing on one's life and experiences. And central to Proust's work is time and temporality temporality and the way those function in our lives. Initially, you didn't think Nausgaard was doing anything with time, although you eventually came to see that he is actually doing something similar to Proust in exploring time and memory, although he goes in a very different direction with it. So can you maybe unpack what you see him doing here? Yeah, I will try. I mean, this was a big um, project for me in writing Dear Nausgaard, is kind of figuring out um, what that relationship was, like what Nausgaard might have been thinking about Proust as he was writing my struggle, because, um, you know, certainly a lot of people have compared both novels, and, um, and, and Nausgaard himself talks about really admiring Proust, um, Proust's work, you know, that gigantic novel, Remembrance of Things Past, and um, I felt like he was quoting Proust, like I, I recognized a few things that felt like if he were a musician, he was doing a cover of like a Proust scene here or there, or a kind of Proustian gesture of, of you know, really dilating a, a moment in the present and doing a massively deep dive for hundreds of pages into the past, only to resurface again in, in a moment of, you know, eating something or drinking something. Um, and now Scarts, you know, the Madeleine is really famous 
obviously in Proust and in Nausgaard's case, there's a section, I think in book two, where he goes on and on for almost 400 pages and in this deep dive, memory dive, um, in the middle of drinking a cigarette, drinking a Pepsi and smoking a cigarette. And then at the end of it all, he like stubs out his cigarette and finishes his Pepsi. So that just felt like a kind of like wink, wink. Um, I just did a Proust, you know, um, and so I, I recognized a lot of moments like that along the way. And I thought, I thought he was just, you know, um, playing with some of Proust's ideas and kind of having fun with them, but not doing anything particularly interesting with time himself. I didn't see that. And I think I only started to see it when I, when I really started studying this question, um, like what are the differences between Nausgaard and Proust? And I think, I think from my understanding is that in Proust, Proust was interested in time, almost like a substance, like a thing, um, a presence in our lives. And he was really, you're very aware when you're reading Remembrance of Things Past of Proust, the author, this extremely sophisticated sensibility um, that's looking back over his life with with all that sophistication in play. So there's a great sense of retrospective distance and retrospective wisdom. So when Proust is writing about 10-year-old Marcel himself, um, he's doing so as an adult looking back with all the psychological sophistication of adulthood and and kind of examining the experience of the child um, with that sophistication in place. And that gives you this great sense of time as a, as a thing that exists. Um, between ourselves and our past. And um, time in Proust's work becomes a kind of character almost. Nazgar does the opposite. He, in each of the six volumes, he pitches the tone of his voice and I should say kind of the psychological tone of his voice to be the age he was when the main events of that book are taking place. And this is kind of apparent in books, book one, where, you know, when I got bored of that scene in the snow, I think I was bored because he was writing with all the psychological sophistication of a 16-year-old, which isn't very much. Um, and then I got interested when he was writing more as a 31-year-old, um, cleaning up his grandmother's house. Book three is about his childhood, and it's very apparent there that he is he's shifting his tone, his kind of psychological lens changes uh, from pretty young childhood up through middle school and then high school, you watch it move. Um, And then book four, he's 18 or 19 years old. I found that book very frustrating for the same reason I found the beer in the snow scene frustrating. Just, you know, the myopia of, of a teenager can be frustrating um, so basically, Nausgaard's refusing. Um, it's not there is there's there are moments of retrospective wisdom for sure, but not a lot of them. And he's really trying to hew as closely as possible to the experience um, of Karlove at the time he was eighteen or at the time he was twenty five. Um, so this is just one more instance where Nausgaard is insisting on the primacy of the present moment. And I almost wonder, I kind of have a suspicion that he looked at what Proust had done and how he treated time in this way. Like it's very linear, but it also is recursive and memory can bring us back, back through time. And in that way, it, it feels very dizzying and kind of opens and expands. And I think he might've looked at what my suspicion is that he he looked at what Proust did and said, what can I do differently? And he did this, collapsing collapsing time as much as possible into the present moment um, for each part of the narrative. At one point, you bring up the Chilean philosopher and biologist Umberto Maturana, who has developed a theory that each living being produces and sustains its own world through its own collection of filters and experiences. And you don't then make this link explicit, but it seemed to me that you're hinting that you see Nausgaard as embodying a sort of solipsism by bringing this up. 
So can you maybe unpack this bit and where you think Nausgaard sits in relation to maybe a sort of existential solipsism? Um, I didn't, I actually didn't bring up Maturana to, I don't think that Nausgaard is a solipsist at all. I know that's like a big accusation that he gets. A lot of people think his work is really narcissistic. Um, You know, thinking about Proust, a lot of people have called his work like a gigantic, uh, like a Proust for the selfie generation, or like it's a gigantic selfie. Um, I think that he's, it's easy to think of him as a solipsist because he's interested in our perceptions of reality as they occur on the inside. and Maturana is also interested in that. Maturana, I'm not a Maturana expert. I just, I read him in my 20s, um, probably reread him in my 30s. He's just been a kind of touchstone for me. His theory of autopoiesis, as I understand it, is that we are each, um, well, that basically every biological form perceives reality according to its sense structures. So a dragonfly will perceive reality in a way that's extremely different from a human being um, or from a dog because their senses are so differently built and arranged. Um, and that each one of us have slightly different, you know, um, sense systems. So the way I perceive reality will necessarily be different than, for instance, the way you perceive reality. Um, but both Nausgaard and Maturana make a big concession to the idea of influence. So I brought up Maturana at that point in Dear Nausgaard because I was talking about, I think I was talking about Inger Christensen, who's this great poet and, um, how, how you can be, you can be a certain person before you start a book that really affects you. And by the time you're done with that book, you can be you, you feel sh- changed by that book. It's influenced you. It's influenced your, your sense system in a way. Um, but I, just to go back to this idea that Nausgaard's a solipsist or a narcissist, I think, although it's very easy to see that when you see he's written a book called My Struggle, and it's all about his life and his perceptions of reality, um, he's actually, I think, mostly interested in, um, in order to pay attention to you know, this kind of undistort, this reality before it gets distorted by things like shame and the other self-editing things we have in place in order to function in society. He also has to pay attention to what's on the other side of that. So he is actually a very um, observant student of society and, uh, and the larger world. One of the key themes in Nausgaard's work you address is gender and how it informs his work and his identity. Um, So throughout, he definitely wants to be kind of a man's man and finds himself often emasculated by what seem to me to be very trivial or petty things. But in spite of how stupid it makes him look, and at times it's just kind of, frankly, kind of pathetic, and he seems vaguely aware of how stupid and pathetic it is, he refuses or is unable to let go of this kind of idea of himself and his masculinity. So what do you see going on with this tension here? Uh, I think a few things are going on with that. So part of the deal when he like signed on to write a book in which he was going to, you know, really let it hang out, really reveal what was going on on the inside before he went to the, you know, did the work to make it like more palatable to the people around him. Part of that deal means like sounding like an idiot some of the times. And he does like, and, but I think he's, he, he knows that, but it's like in order for him to really speak from this place, that's so deeply internal. Um, he kind of has to, um, he has to be able to sound like an idiot sometimes. So he does. He sounds like a sexist pig a lot of the times. Um, 
But I also think that, you know, there's a lot around masculinity that comes from his relationship to his father, who um, was a very overbearing presence. And, you know, in Nausgaard's eyes when he was young, like a, a real man. And he often belittled Karlove, who had a lisp when he was young and liked pretty clothes. And, you know, kids at school made fun of him, called him, I think it was a Nancy. I'm not sure what term it was, but, you know, obviously kind of an accusation of being effeminate or possibly gay. So he kind of is stuck on this. But even more than that, Nausgaard as a thinker is like stuck on dualities. They come up again and again and again in my struggle. He's like obsessed with them. And they're kind of an engine for the work. Like, it's not just masculine versus feminine, you know, and in his view, the feminine is, is like weak and formless and, and, and colorless. Um, it's really doesn't, doesn't have a lot to going for it. Um, but he, he's also fixated on dualities like the inside and the outside, obviously, or biological forms and material reality and freedom and personal responsibility or, or, openness and and closedness like that's a really big one for him um he aspires in in this work of literature to be as open as possible and as expansive as possible and that partly explains why it's so long it's just he 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 wants a sense of kind of like endlessness and openness um but he's always working within these dualities so he fixates on the difference between the masculine and the feminine, and he really doesn't leave a lot of space for the, you know, the realities of the gray space between those things. Moving along with that, one of the most interesting points in my struggle that you address is how gender works with language, especially in response to uh, a passage he writes on gender-neutral language and how he thinks it's a politically correct takeover that ruins our individuality. But you find this worth addressing and pushing against. Mm -hmm. And so you do have some points of agreement regarding how gender, language, and ideology are related, but you take it in a very different direction than he does. So can you maybe unpack his own take and how you kind of, where you kind of line up, but then go in a different direction or diverge from his view? Sure. So, um, so I, I think you're talking about in, in, in my book, I discuss a kind of, um, a, a smallish scene in which Nausgaard is discussing, I think like the other parents at his kids' preschool, um, I don't know, someone he knows in Swedish society who, this element of Swedish society that believes that there should be a third gender neutral pronoun, which is hen. The other two, I'm not sure which is masculine and which is feminine, but they're han and hun or something like that. And they, they want this new one, hen. And in Nausgaard's view, he explains that he thinks that this is a terrible idea because they want to like squash difference and they want to squash individuality and they want to make everybody the same. And this is incredibly, he doesn't say this. He just, that, that's what he says. He leaves it there. But, you know, if you read all of my struggle and especially if you read book six and you read the essay on Hitler, you realize that this is like a very serious accusation from Nausgaard because, you know, the, that's what the Nazis did. And he goes on at length about how the Nazis crushed individuality and tried to homogenize society and erase difference, um, both of the, their victims and also of like, you know, of Germans that were trying to make everybody exactly the same in this utopian vision of, of Germany. Um, so it's an extremely serious accusation of his. So I, I take it up and I I do. I, I, I get what he's saying. I agree. It's really important to not squash individuality. But what I argue is that language itself, you know, and he also, I should just say, he, he, um, he talks a lot about how individually, individuality is squashed by utopian ideals, by ideals in general, by I, ideology. Um, 
so what I argue is that language is imbued with ideology, and in particular, it's imbued with the ideology of patriarchy. And that the people who want to use a pronoun like hen or a pronoun in English like them, um, they are doing, they are arguing for that, right? Because they already feel that ind- their individuality is squashed or oppressed or erased by the language itself. So I'm basically just um, arguing that, that, that we need to look closely at where, um, you know, the dangers of ideology actually lurk and that many of them lurk in language itself and that it might be difficult for someone like Nausgaard to acknowledge that because he's in a position, he happens to be in a position um, being white, being male, being cisgendered, being middle class, and so having had a, a good education, he's in a position to use language in a way that feels very neutral or very natural. And it might not be as apparent to someone like him that actually there's a lot of oppression built into language itself. So in contrast to masculinity, Nausgaard's second wife, Linda, is maybe the most detailed chance we get to see his vision of women and femininity. So throughout the books, he is clearly obsessed with women in a certain way, often lustfully, often kind of blurred with some other approaches. And at times he describes Linda and her work as being vibrant and full of life and kind of saturated with this positive energy. But the other side of this is her bipolar disorder and the way her highs and lows are kind of borderline unmanageable, how she doesn't always do her share of the housework, and overall how she seems at times to be largely out of control of herself and kind of spiraling um, for, for good when she is being productive and for ill when she eventually has to go into a psych ward. Um, what does the way he perceives Linda tell us about how he understands femininity and maybe more broadly, how, how does that kind of play out in the work? Um, that's such an interesting question. I think Linda is such an interesting character. Um, I've come to feel that, you know, especially after having read book six and that crazy essay, um, that Nausgaard's such a um, careful thinker, really he thinks so deeply about so many things, but Linda's like this. I, I feel that Linda as a character is a strangely tragic feeling blind spot um, for him. I think you're right that he, you know, he reveals himself in this novel to be obsessed with women in a certain way. It's very, you know, lustful or whatever. Um, And he idealizes women a great deal. I mean, I think the whole, his impetus to try to get out of the head um, and into the heart and, and, um, you know, get out of ideas and ideology and just feel what's happening from the heart is probably something that he arrived at because he's so attached to ideas and ideals. And Linda, my impression of Linda was that she was extremely vivid in book two when they're actually falling in love. Um, she's all those things that you say. She's like, you know, very vital, um, very warm, very beautiful, very intelligent and saturated with positive energy, as you put it. Um, but as life gets messier, they have kids, they get married, they have to make the kind of compromises that, you know, everybody in that kind of relationship has to make with each other. And then on top of that, she's got a serious mental illness. Um, she kind of, as much as he talks about her, it's always from a strange remove. I felt like I couldn't really see her um, after, after she fell from this very high ideal. Um, she was more kind of like a strange fact of his life that was troubling and taking up time and, and like hard to negotiate, but I didn't see her the person. And I don't know if that's, that's because you know, he, it's hard for him to see women unless they're fulfilling this ideal or if it's because she was so ill and it's really hard to handle and understand a mental illness that serious. 
Um, but I, I do think that um, Linda, as a point of interest in the novel as a whole, um, there's a sadness kind of clinging to her character because I, even though she's so much in the books, it's just hard to see her because I feel like he doesn't see her. He doesn't see her with the same kind of attention that he sees, you know, the messy kitchen at 4.30 a.m. Or, or the kids' clothes all over the ground. It's that kind of attention isn't there for her. One of the comments you made that I found really fascinating was that Nausgaard's first wife, uh, Tonya, is one of the characters who feels the most real to you. And you think that may be because she's written about the least or comes up very briefly. So I'm curious if you could unpack this a bit, because one would imagine the opposite would be the case, that the more he writes about someone, the more real they become. So what do you think it means that less detail here feels more realistic, at least in this case? Mm. Um, I think it's related to, you know, what I was just saying about Linda. Like, all, all the female characters outside of, I would say, Nausgaard's own mother, and even her to a certain degree, and, and Linda's mother, who curiously I thought felt very real. Um, you know, he falls in love several times in books three and four and five, you know, with different girls and women. Gets very excited about them. And they all approach that ideal that Linda was, very vibrant. Um, and then they, they kind of fade from view. Um, but Tonya, really, there's very little time spent on her. And yet he was married to her for a number of years. And my struggle looks at Nausgaard's entire life, you know, piece by piece, different sections of it, not necessarily in order. But there's this glaring omission, which is from his late 20s to his early 30s, um, when he was married to Tonya. And that's just not part of this novel. So that's just intriguing in and of itself. Like, like how did Tonya escape Nausgaard's desire to, quote unquote, make the world real again, you know? Um, and I think, but more than that, I kind of feel like as, you know, as, as an exciting, his efforts are to make the world real again, and you can get really wrapped up in them. And it feels incredibly exciting to all this intense sensory description, um, can be kind of almost addictive. I mean, I think people get addicted to these books because that level of sensory detail it like actually sparks something in your brain. It feels almost like you're experiencing it. It's so detailed. Um, and yet at the end of the day, this is, everything is coming, you know, from deep inside Nausgaard. He doesn't give any room to outside perspectives. He's not interested in that. Um, and so everything is filtered through him and everything kind of like has the Nausgaard like, flavor or coloring or something. And Tonya doesn't have that because he doesn't spend that much time on her. Um, you know that she's real. You know she really exists in the world. You know that she was really married to him for a period of time, but she's mm, sort of unsullied by his attempts to make the world real again. Another topic that comes up is the literary canon, the collection of great authors and works that we consider to be in some way authoritative or definitive. So for Nausgaard, the canon is a challenge to be risen to, but you argue that it only exists as a challenge for him because he's a man, whereas you've never felt welcome in the canon or to even try to rise up to it. So can you maybe tell us a bit about how Nausgaard sees the canon and how you see it and kind of how gender might inform that perspective and how that perspective might then inform the canon as well. Mm. Um, so, you know, Nasgard is quite unsparing. Um, you know, like I was saying before, he, he allows himself to look stupid uh, or ugly um, because he, he's decided to write as truthfully as possible. And so, one of the things that he writes about incredibly truthfully is his own ambition as a writer. And it, I'd never s seen anybody write that 
frankly about their ambition to write something great, you know, as he puts it, to write something extraordinary, I think he says. And he, he is an amazing reader, um, very widely read, especially in the European tradition. And um, uh, he just, it, when he, he at one point kind of lists out um, a series of influences on him. And it almost, it reminded me of reading um, the Saga of Egil, an Icelandic, you know, saga where the first 30 pages are just a listing out of the, the genealogy to kind of like place Egil at the end of this long line of Viking warriors. When Nausgaard lists out all these influences from the literary canon, these great writers who are all male, um, I just felt like it was almost the same thing. Like he, he could imagine himself like following in their footsteps. And for me as a woman, you know, roughly the same age as Nausgaard, um, I was raised and I think that girls are still basically raised in the same way. You know, under these these the 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 ideology of patriarchy is hidden not just in our language, but obviously in the canon, and it's just it saturates everything. Um, and the books that I had to read um, as a child in school were by men. Um, they were largely about men. When I studied science, it was the male body that was like the the human body and the female body was kind of like this weird perversion of it. Um, I can remember the first time that I heard the story of Adam and Eve, at least to remember it. I, I vividly remember just actually feeling like the world changed, like the world just changed around me when I heard that, you know, God in this crucial creation myth for all of Western culture god created man and then in his image and then literally as an afterthought he created eve um uh, to help (laughs) to help adam out i think that when you're raised with these kinds of stories and they're so common that they're actually almost invisible that it it trains you to see yourself a certain way and it was just amazing to me to see how differently Nausgaard viewed himself than the way I view myself in relation to something like the canon, which is largely male for obvious reasons, um, because it's been it's been very difficult for women to to write until fairly recently. Um, yeah. So, I, does that answer your question? Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah. Um, so to move along, the novel, according to Nausgaard, and you've brought this up at several points, was an attempt to kind of reanimate reality or try to make it more real in an age of increasing on reality. So beyond questions of whether this novel fits in the canon and will be read 100 years from now, it definitely seems to have struck a sort of nerve by aiming at something we wanted at this moment. So whether or not Nausgaard is himself completely successful at addressing the problems he himself raises, what do you think we as readers, writers, and podcast listeners, and everyone else should take away from his work? Um, I think think the thing his work points out that's really important um, to take note of and to take to heart is the idea that there's a really, there's a crucial difference between kind of ideas and information, which we're inundated with in this information age, there, that is not the same thing as experience. And experience is something that you can only partake in right now in the very place you are right now, the here and now. Um, again, it's, to, to me, it's a very Buddhist idea, um, but I think, it's, I think it's at the heart of what Nausgaard is talking about. Um, and that, you know, don't, don't live your life on autopilot. It gets so easy to do. The older you get, you get more habituated. You get used to thinking of your life and life in general and certain 
you know, received wisdom kind of ways. Um, you know, I think what he's asking us to do is to, to let go of those conceptions that limit our ability to fully partake in life and to be kind of freer. Um, yeah, I think, I think that's what I take away from my struggle anyway. Excellent. So as a final question, what, if anything, are you working on now? Um, I'm playing around with an, a novel about E.T.A. Hoffman, who was a, a German romantic writer. That's um, kind of like a sort of biography, sort of um, literary analysis, but in the shape of a novel. Um, I know that doesn't make a lot of sense, but I'm not sure it'll go anywhere. But that is what I'm working on right now. Hmm. Still playing with genres, I yeah, guess. Right. Yeah. So this has been a wonderful hour. So Kim Adrian, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Stephen. It was a pleasure.